You're listening to a sermon delivered at First Family Church from the series, The King and the Kings, Anticipation in the Books of Samuel. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. This has been true since man's been here, that, that he meant what he said when he said, our way, he said, my ways are not your ways. I mean, he actually meant that. And sometimes we don't understand what God is doing and so we trust him. That's the perspective we need to have. I think that's where the Israelites ended up as well. During the time of Samuel, of the Old Testament, we're going to see a story today that I think ends in a place where they begin to trust the Lord. But it took uh, a lot to get them there. So locate First Samuel chapter 5, would you? And let's... Take a few moments and just see how God worked in this uh, scenario in which the Ark of the Covenant is actually in the hands of Israel's enemies. If you recall back in chapter 4, they went to get the Ark because they wanted to use it to fix their problems. (laughs) Now we're going to see in 5 through and 6 that they're trying to get rid of the Ark because it's causing them problems. Some are saying, get the ark. Some are saying, get rid of the ark. Nobody knows what to do with the ark. Let me just put it to you plainly. Nobody knows what to do with God. That's actually a good place to be. He's that sovereign and powerful and majestic and otherly. That What do we do with the God this powerful? We're going to see this story 5 and 6. I'll read the verses and you follow along. I've kind of put a map behind me. It'll show you the journey of the ark. It's kind of circular in some ways. Um, I will just kind of walk through this a little bit, make some comments. My goal is that we kind of see the bigger picture, the kind of the significance of the story, the point of the narrative. Take a few questions maybe at the end, uh, illustrate this a bit. And then at the end, I I hope we can maybe bring ourselves to a posture of, of submission confession, intercession. We're going to have some time here at the front, those who want to come and pray and respond to this holy God. So let's begin. Chapter 5, verse 1. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Dagon was probably the god of grain. Some think he may have been the god of fish. Um, but more than likely is this agriculture kind of grain deity. It was in the temple, and of course for, a, for a, a rival to say we captured your God and he's in our temple is a big mark. So they looked at this as a massive victory. More than likely this may have been, I wouldn't say the capital city, but a prominent city within the Philistine territory. There were multiple cities. You'll see there are five that are primary. There were other ones as well, but they put it here in Ashdod in this temple And they're feeling really proud. But the next day when they arose early, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Isn't that interesting to you? That in chapter 4, they went and got the ark and said, Lord, defeat our enemies. And God, in deliberate silence, sent a message. And now with no one around of his people in a foreign territory, in a foreign pagan temple, he says, by the way, I'm still here and I'm still powerful. He takes out this idol. He will not be manipulated, but he is ever-present, ever-powerful, and ever-in-control. 
So they rose early. The, they, they put him back in place. Poor little Dagon, right? They put him back in the place. The next morning, he had fallen face down on the ground before the ark. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Here's a picture an artist drew that might kind of resemble what that looked like, just so you'll know as you read this story. And this is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon, um, they do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. Did you show that picture, Jill, that next picture of what the artist rendering yet? There it is. There we go. You can kind of see maybe what that might have looked like. But wherever that area was, and there was some type of threshing floor there perhaps, or some type of activity, they don't even do that anymore because the Ark of the Covenant seemed and was more powerful than this foreign god. Well, the hand of the Lord, verse 6 says, was heavy against the people of Ashdod. So not only in their temple, but here's how it was heavy to the people of Ashdod. He terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. So in the whole land... Uh, this medical problem broke out. Now, what you're going to see later, and we'll read through this, is that they made an offering, uh, something that I would say what a lot of guys call sympathetic magic. They kind of uh, emulated what they knew the Israelites did to try to get God to be appeased. But they put a certain amount of, of uh, uh, images of mice and then certain um, images of tumors. The best word may be that of hemorrhoids. It could be boils. But they made images of these things and the mice and they put them in this uh, offering to the Israel's God. It may be referencing here that there was just the first or at least one of the instances of the black plague, the bubonic plague, the black death. Because of the reference to mice and because of the boils or the tumors. We're not sure exactly. But something terrible broke out and happened here. It terrified Ashdod and the territory. The men of Ashdod saw how things were. They said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. I'm surprised they still thought he was their God after what happened. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines, and they said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they said, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. And so they brought the ark of God of Israel there, but after they brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against that city. So Ashdod, then Gath... And it was a very, in a very great panic. He afflicted the men of that city, both young and old, so the tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, you're ahead of me here, aren't you? You can see what's happening, right? The people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. Word spread. They knew what was happening. So they sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of God of Israel. We we don't want any part of this. God's presence was very powerful. His judgment was very strong. It's interesting to me, they, they didn't ask for this and they got it. Israel was asking for God and he deliberately didn't give it. There was a deathly panic through the whole city. The hand of God was heavy there. Notice in verse 11, That's the third time we read that phrase. It's in verse 11, the hand of God was heavy. It's in verse 9, the hand of the Lord was against the city. It's in verse 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And I need to say this to you. This is not something God allowed. This is what God did. It's hard to understand and balance and comprehend. But let's not put God in some some box that he does not create. 
God actively showed up. All right? As chapter 6 opens, it kind of recaps what occurred in these seven months. You just kind of read through that in chapter 5. But here's the seven months he talks about that the ark of the Lord is in the country of the Philistines. And so they called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what shall we send it to its place? We want to get rid of it. Where can it, where can it go? What can we send with it? And then they said, if you send away the ark of God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Now think about this, church. These are pagan people who aren't God's people, and yet they're sensing we ought to sacrifice something. Israel did not seem to have that sense at all, at least in the narrative we're reading, right? It's interesting, isn't it? Now, I wouldn't say this sacrifice meant anything in one sense. It was probably, like I said, more like sympathetic type of worship. What some companies called sympathetic magic. Let's do what they did and see if it works for us. Kind of like that sense. But they knew that this God was not one to be messed with. We need to sacrifice something. And so they said, what is the guilt offering? We shall return to him. They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice. According to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. And so you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods on your land, your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh harden their hearts? What an intriguing question by a lost person. Word had traveled apparently. Several hundred years, stories had been passed down and it was remembered that, that the Egyptians didn't fare too well when they messed with God because they hardened their hearts. And here he's saying, these, these pagan guys say, hey, don't, don't do what Pharaoh did. It won't end well. And after he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows in which there's never come a yoke. Yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves. And what's described here is a, a positioning of the cart with the ark and these cows, and they said this, we're going to send it away. And if it goes in a straight line to Israel, we know that, that God has accepted this from us and that he's, this was from him. We know that God's behind this. It's not coincidental, so to speak. But if the cows just kind of wander around, dilly-dally here and there, and end up back here perhaps, we'll know this is just a coincidence, not to worry about it. That's what's described next. Well... Verse 12, the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned either to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. And they, they watched. Is this really happening? Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. They split up the wood of the cart, offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. Here's finally a sacrifice by God's people. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord. Key phrase there, the ark went back to a priestly city. The priests were responsible for the worship, for the law. They, and I don't want to say above all other people, but for sure they should have known the law and how to encourage the people and instruct people to worship God. That'll play in handy later. Watch this. This is a priestly city, a Levitical city. They offered the burnt offerings. They sacrificed sacrifices. The Philistines, the lords of those cities, saw that and they went back to Ekron. 
And these are the golden tumors that the Philistines regarded as a guilt offering. He mentions the cities here, Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. And he says these represent not only those cities, but other cities that were unwalled, the unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And then this interesting verse that describes how the Lord struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh. Why? We thought things were looking up. Because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. They treated the ark of the Lord in a way that wasn't prescribed. And if anybody should have known how to handle the ark, who should it have been? The Levites, the priests, the people in this city, the men of the city. And yet they had been so removed from God's commandments. It reminds me, if I could just pause here and say this, it reminds me of why the leaders of Israel ask in chapter 4, why has the Lord defeated us this day? I mean, if anyone should have known what God was doing when he refused to deliver them, it was an answer to Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy, when he said, if you disobey me, I will not fight for you in battle. It's the blessings and cursings. And yet they didn't know. The leaders didn't know. Here the Levites are unaware of how they're to treat the Ark of the Covenant. And I, I just want to say this is just an early application point. Removing yourself from God's word, his commandments... When you gradually, over time, just distance yourself from what God said, don't be surprised if one day you wake up and say, hey, hey, why is this happening? When really, it's pretty clear, but you're so far from what God said, you've been so distant from it, even basic truth that God has written for us seems like it's something you can't even remember. Stay close to the Bible on a regular basis. So these men dishonored the Lord and the ark of the Lord, His presence, He struck 70 of them. Some of your translations may say 50,000. More than likely, we will probably, I think 70 is a more accurate rending of that. There are just some different manuscripts that have different numbers. Some New Testament historians also have confirmed the 70 number. So I, I probably tend to think it's more accurate to say the 70 men. The people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow and and then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? To whom shall he go up away from us? Here's what they're saying. What do we do with God? We couldn't control him earlier. The Philistines couldn't control him. And now we can't control him in this time frame. What are we going to do? Who can stand up under his judgment? And where can we send him where he won't make his presence powerfully manifest? I think that's the culminating verse of this narrative. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, you up for this? (laughs) You want to be next? Hey, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. And so the men of that city came, took up the ark of the Lord, and brought it to the house of Amenadab on the hill, and he... And the consecrated son, Eleazar, to have charge of the ark of the Lord. And then one of the saddest verses in this narrative. And from that day, the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim. A long time passed, some 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. 20 years is a long time. History says that actually the ark stayed here for 100 years. But it's recorded here as 20 only because it took that long for the revival to kind of begin to happen. 
But it, wasn't, it didn't leave this city until David actually went and got it later. Interesting story, isn't it? Quite the opposite of chapter 4. In chapter 4, the people are trying to get the ark to forgive this, fix their problems. God says no. In chapters 5 and 6, the people want to say, hey, we captured the ark. And God says, no, I want to show up in ways you can't control. So what do we learn from this story? Can I just give you three kind of observations that will actually form one sentence? So let me give it to you in three parts. First of all, the Lord is sovereign over all people, even places and things. Remember last week, we learned that God was sovereign over his people, right? And he was. But what you see now, God is sovereign over, say it with me, all people, even places and things. So that's why all creatures of our God and King worship him. He had the cows under his sovereign hand. (laughs) He had an idol under his sovereign hand. He had the Philistines under his sovereign hand. He had illnesses under his sovereign hand. Let me repeat to you what I said to you three weeks ago. There is nothing outside of the control of God. Not a single second of your life has been outside of his sovereign authority and control. Not a single one. Do we always on this side understand how it's working together? We don't. We're limited and we're finite, but God is infinite, holy, and all-knowing, and every single second is under his control. That's how sovereign he is. By the way, you can't be partially sovereign, okay? I know you know that, but... Sometimes folks will say, well, maybe he doesn't control that, but this. Well, if he doesn't control that, he's not sovereign. You're either fully sovereign or you're not sovereign, right? And we know from this story, God is actually sovereign, not just over his people, but over all people, even places and things. Let me mention this to you as well. He does that often in what I would call deliberate silence, chapter 4. And then also in definite superiority, chapters 5 and 6. Make a note of that because more often than not, you'll, you'll, you'll see God working perhaps in the, what I might say, the, the definite silence aspects. When he doesn't move as you think he should move. And you think he's not there, he's not listening, he's absent. He's actually fully there. He's actually fully in control. It just seems like he's not there. Now, in, let me see if I can explain this like this. That's when you can't believe what you feel, you have to believe what you know, okay? You have to trust the promise more than the perception. For instance, there's a big word for this, by the way, it's called phenomenological. It's when you have to trust an outside, independent source of truth because what you're experiencing and feeling says the opposite. It's called phenomenological. For instance, if you were to take a walk today and you only trusted what you felt and what you experienced and what you observed, you would actually say the earth is flat. You would, by the way. You look at the horizon and say, that's pretty flat to me. You wouldn't actually say, just left to your own experience, that you're walking on a sphere. (laughs) But because you have independent truth, 
then you're able to interpret and make sure your feelings are in line with what's actually correct. Are you with me? So when you think God is silent, let an outside independent source of truth, what God's word and his promises, arrest your tendency to drift and think, man, that's, I guess he's not here. No, 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 no. That's what you feel, but that's not actually true. Trust the promise, not the perception. God is still fully in control, and he is actually there. So he's there, he's in control, in deliberate silence sometimes, and other times in definite superiority, when he takes off the heads of the idols. Amen? Regardless, God is in control. Why? Why is God in control? To magnify to display his holiness. That's the second part of this one sentence. So the Lord is sovereign over all people, even places and things, to magnify his holiness. Again, I bring you back to this verse in chapter 6, verse 20. This question that was asked by the Levitical men of Beth Shemesh. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, to whom shall he go up away from us? And quite frankly, there is an answer to the question. If no one can stand up to him, then everyone should take a knee to him. That's the answer to the question. No one can stand up under God's judgment. I think that's what begins to happen at the close of 6, the opening of 2. They begin to take the knee under God's sovereign control and holiness. This is the long-term intent of all of the situations that occurred, both in chapter 4 chapter 5 and chapter 6. It was to get the people of Israel, watch this church, and the people who weren't Israel to realize God is holy. He's otherly than you. He's, he's not of this world. He's different. He's set apart. That's the actual meaning of the word holy, to be set apart. Different, consecrated. And God is set apart from us. He's different. And so when our sin affronts him, when we violate his holiness, God responds to that. And so we did in these chapters with this explicit intent that they would see just how holy he is. Now I need you to listen to this next section very carefully because it is not until every single person realizes this that God has done everything to get me to see just how holy he is. It is not until that point, until that occurs, that people are actually born again. Because this is the fundamental um, reason people repent. And no one is saved without repentance. You with me? Say, I thought you had to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You do. But you won't believe in Jesus if you still think you can believe in your gods. You won't turn to Christ if you think, you know what? I'm going to hold on to my, my good works. It's not until you realize that everything you have done or haven't done, it just violates God's holiness. Nothing about us can approach God. We need a mediator. And when that settles on someone... And they realize that without a a mediator, a lawyer, someone to plead my case for me, I don't have a chance before God. Then suddenly, conviction, repentance. And then, when they repent, God gives new life from what was formerly death. 
and people are born again. Does that make sense? Now, I say that to you because I want to ask you a, a, just a very forthright question. Has there been a time in your life when, when your sin came just face to face with you and you realized that you were in violation, not of the school's rules or of someone else's opinion, you were in violation of a holy God. And unless you appeal to the lawyer, Jesus Christ, to stand in for you, you'll be lost forever. There's no way to make this right with this holy God. He's different than you. He's otherly. He's holy. We're unholy. What are we going to do, people? We believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Son of God, who's the only mediator between God and man. That's what we do. And can I just plead with anyone here this morning who may be sitting in your own sense of holiness or righteousness, thinking, this is different opinions. God has one, I have one. No, God is in control of all people. He's sovereign over every person, place, and thing. And your sin will one day have to be accounted for. I urge you not to account for that on your own righteousness, but instead turn and repent and trust Jesus as the only way to be made right with God. In God's gracious love, he sent Jesus to pay for your sins by dying on the cross. And then he raised him from the dead to prove that that death was satisfactory. And now all who believe in Jesus can be saved from their sins. Why do you sit in your seats and wait? Trust Jesus today. This is what God is after. He's doing everything to magnify his holiness so that you would turn to him. That's why the last part of the sentence and the last part of the story shows just how this happened. I think what happens is here he magnifies his holiness and he's moving the people to a lifestyle that's exactly the same way, a holy life. So here's the third thing we observe. That the Lord is sovereign over all people, even places and things, to magnify his holiness, yes, but watch this, to move us to a life of the same, a holy life. I find this in the last few verses of 6 and then 7. And I don't quite fully understand them. I don't know why it took 20 years of lamenting for revival to come. I don't know. I've thought for weeks. wonder what was going on. Maybe God was rooting out a generation of people. Now, a generation is probably usually more than 20 years. Wouldn't you agree? It's maybe 40 years. I don't know. But maybe there were those who were just an older crowd. He had to kind of, they weren't willing to put away their idols. And maybe there's those who were 5 and 10, and they were to grow up, and they were going to love the Lord with all their heart. And so I don't know. Maybe it took this long to rid the land of all the idols. I don't know how long and how big this was. I just think it's interesting that they seem to realize in, in 620, wow, there's nobody like God. And then they move the ark, they appoint someone to oversee it, and for 20 years they mourn and they well that, that God seems absent. He's not. He's just deliberately silent. And they're mourning that. They're wailing that. They're lamenting that. But yet for 20 years, it seemed like somebody would have said, hey, let's take action here, people. 20 years is too long to wait. And yet it took 20 years for 7-3 to occur. We'll see this next week when Samuel finally says, if you're returning to the Lord, and he says, put away your foreign gods. Maybe it took 20 years for them to, to kind of purge the, their, their lives and their land of the idols. I don't know. But I will say this. Whatever is going on, whatever 
had to happen in those 20 years. It was to move the people to a holy life. So there's this realization, wow, God is holy. He can't be manipulated. He can't be managed. He just simply must be worshipped. And once we realize that, then, then we get our lives in line with his. This is why in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, part of what God said to the Levites, by the way, is part of the law. He said, I want you to be holy as I am holy. So God's intent in, the, in his people worshiping him, he who was holy, is that they in turn would live a holy life and resemble the God they worship. So we see his holiness and then we live in light of that. By the way, Peter would echo this. And can I just bring your attention one of the neat ways Peter does this? It's 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. But Peter says this. He says, first of all, we should be holy in all of our conduct. He uses the same word, holy. But then he reverts back and uses Leviticus to back it up. He says, because it is written, be holy as I am holy. So those who would say, well, that's Leviticus. That doesn't apply to us. I think you're mistaken. Peter actually commands us to be holy and appeals to the very Old Testament as the reason we should be holy. Why? Because God is holy. And so to this church... As you see God in all of his holiness, which usually comes when you see how he has acted and sovereignly controlled every situation, both good and bad. When you realize that, wow, this is a massively big, holy God who's sovereign over every person, place, and thing. Then it causes us then to fall down and take a knee before him because who can stand up to him? And once we take it to him, God begins to do a work in us where our lives begin to resemble his character. And maybe that's what takes 20 years. <laughs> so let's take these three observations, put them in a single sentence, can we? It'd be worded just a tad differently, but here's what I'd say to you. The Lord's sovereign over his people. Say it with me. Over all people, places and things is designed to magnify his holiness and move us towards a life of the same, a holy life. Are there any questions, Jill? Let's take these two briefly if we can. Do you believe that something like losing a child is always God's plan, or is something like this a product of death, sickness, and hurt caused by sin? I would say both of those can be true. Sin causes things that we have to deal with, and then God uses them in his plan. Don't ask me to understand that because at this time I'm phenomenological. <laughs> I'm feeling something, but I'm trusting that this book will override what I feel. I'm trusting the promise more than the perception. Next question. How do you reconcile the sovereignty of God with the evils in this world such as abortion, terrorism, etc.? Uh, I don't know that I can. I don't think you have to reckon. I don't know. I don't know how to do that. How's that for an answer? Um, yeah, I don't know. It's frustrating, isn't it? Your heart breaks sometimes, doesn't it? I'm well, My heart wants to share some things now that I don't think would be beneficial in the, in the larger scheme, but just know that I wrote this book with you. I don't, I don't know how to... I believe God and trust him and know that he's sovereign. I do. 
And I think he's working everything to the final end of praise to his name. Philippians chapter 2, Revelation 19 through 21, I believe that. But I don't know how he uses things like this to accomplish that. I don't know. So I'm not going to pretend I do. I'm going to take a knee before God and just be in his presence as much as I can because that's what it takes to get through some of this stuff. So if that bothers you as a guest, that your pastor doesn't know much about that, sorry. That's the best I can do on that question. That's a tough one. Now let me just kind of wrap this up by, by mentioning a couple things to you because as we think about God's presence, we have to ask ourselves, when I, when I see what God is doing, will I be willing to respond to it? Sometimes God speaks, watch this, sometimes church God speaks in his definite, I'll use the word silence or absence. He's noticeably gone. And he's not really gone, right? But he's removing his power and blessing and he's wondering, are you getting the message? Other times he's noticeably present. I was thinking, have I ever seen that happen? Is there a place where I've, I think I've seen that and it, and it you know, like maybe helps relate to each other? I think I've seen one example of this when God was noticeably absent. And I'm not sure, but I think this is the case. I don't want to tread very lightly here. I have a great amount of gratefulness and respect for my home church and uh, how I was raised was a gift of God. His sovereignty was so evident in every aspect. Later, as I, as I got older and probably early college and then eventually moved out, I, I felt like, I mean, our church hit some hard times. Um, to the point that I think over a period of years, I'm not sure exactly how many, but it no longer exists. It did restart in a new place with a new name and kind of got a rebirth, okay? But there were multiple years that, in my opinion, it appeared that God wrote Ichabod over our church. In thinking about God's obvious absence, I remember thinking, why, why didn't someone just speak up and say, something's not right here? And if you were to ask my opinion, I think we had some corrupt leadership that was never dealt with initially. There were some sexual issues first, and then there were other moral issues later. That doesn't make everyone in that situation at fault, but I think God does take leadership seriously. And in my opinion, God removed his power when that church refused to deal with corrupt leadership. And it lasted probably a couple of decades until finally the candle went out. It saddens me. It saddens me. I have a lot of gratitude for things and how I gripped my church. I do. But I think there was a lack of courage to call it what it was. And I, that's why I was this week very sensitive to what God was doing in our church and why I'm very, fe- I wouldn't say fearful in a weird way, but I don't want to be deaf to what God's doing in this church. Amen? We turn a deaf ear to God one day, then one week, and then a year. Churches die a slow death. And it's usually after decades they realize, where's God been all this time? And sometimes it's usually too late. I want us to be sensitive every single week to the presence and power of God among us. I don't want Ichabod over this church, and neither do you. Amen? Where have I seen God powerfully present where it was undeniable? Several things came to mind. I think the earthquake in Nepal is one that the Nepalese people would say that was God speaking to us. Now, you wouldn't say that because you're American. Americans have difficulty owning 
catastrophe and calamity as from God. I'm not here to say definitively it is, but I'll say this to you. In Nepal, I didn't meet a single Christian. I met hundreds over that week and a half. I didn't meet a single Christian who didn't say, God spoke loudly and is calling our nation to repentance. Were they right or wrong? I don't know, but they have no problem seeing God in all of his sovereign control, that he could send an earthquake to wake them up. The one I saw firsthand was when Brad and Brenda Miller got saved. Brad's at hospice. He's on his way to see Jesus more than likely. But a few years ago, maybe 13 years ago, when I was co-pastoring at Grace West before we started this church, it was Easter Sunday, and I was looking forward to preaching, but I knew they were going to be there, and Brad had said, hey, my parents are coming. They're not Christians. Are you going to give an invitation? And I was like, yeah, I'll try to give an invitation. And you know, I've told you, I'm terrible at invitations. I don't know how to give them. I'm not good at them. I think they work, but I think God can move even without them too. But I thought, you know, I probably ought to give one. It's Easter, yeah. And so I said, Brad, could you help at the front? Yeah, and so I preached, and then I got to the invitation. I got nervous, and I'm, I probably looked really goony and goofy. I'm like, hey, uh, you know, we're done, so maybe we could play something, and maybe some, I mean, if you want to come forward, I guess you don't have to, but you can if you want. I don't know. I'm, I'm just hem-hawing, and, and you know, if you want to get saved, we'll help you, I think. I don't know, but you could come down here, and, and I'm just sounding like a total dweeb, you know? And so I said, well, let's just sing something, and immediately, Brad Brenda. They just marched right down the aisle. Here's what I did. I looked at Brad. I'm like, hey, your parents are coming. So they come to the front. I say, hey, what are you here for, you know? We want to get saved. I'm like, oh. <laughs> I mean, I just like, God help this pastor, you know, sometimes. But. And right there at that church, they just so boldly said, we need to get saved. We're lost. And on that day, God saved them. Brad had been laying groundwork for months, by the way, planting seeds. He did the same with his sister, his whole family, in fact. There was not an idol in the universe that could have stopped God from bringing Brad and Brenda to be saved that day. His power was, his power was present and just in control. They got baptized. So last night when Bradford says to me and Julie, we're there at the hospice room, he says, Todd, you know what? Some dark days ahead for a few days, but he said, I know where I'm going. That's right, Sandra, amen. I'll see Jesus soon. And there's sadness in the room. There is grief, but there's not grief without hope because God's power was so present in Bradford's life years ago and saved him by his grace. Amen. So, Yeah, I don't know sometimes how God is speaking in your life. Could God be trying to get your attention in a deliberately silent way where he zaps and you're like, what's going on? Hey, call it what it is. God's gone. Let it wake you up. You need his presence. Repent. Or maybe God is showing up in a powerful way and you're like, man, I need to get saved. I need to get right. I need to repent. Do that. I don't want to ask you to do that. I don't want to invite you to do that. I want to call you to do that. Your eternal destiny may he very well hinge when I respond to God today. And if God is showing you his power, repent and trust him to save you. Confess your sin. Come to God. If you know people who are on the verge of this, pray for them. And may God's presence speak so powerfully that no one leaves without responding to him.